another episode of the Touch Points podcast by East Point Bible Church. I'm Matthew Carnegie, one of the pastors here, and this week we're finishing a three-part mini-series on baptism. If you missed either of the last two episodes, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to them first because these all connect and build on one another, so you'll want to be up to speed on what this episode is based on. First, we began by looking at what baptism is, both the term as well as what the church ordinance itself consists of. And last week, we looked at the meaning of baptism to help understand why we do it as well as refine our practice of it. So for our final episode on this subject, we're going to dive into the highly controversial area of when it is appropriate to baptize someone and how that impacts church membership. As I've been saying, this isn't really the format to explore every angle of such a significant topic, but I will try to address the most important aspects in enough detail to demonstrate the Bible's teaching on the subject and invite further study on your own. To get into this subject, though, I do need to frame this conversation carefully. First of all, I want to reiterate what was explained in earlier episodes, that because water baptism is a ritual picturing believers' spiritual baptism into Christ, and because salvation is only by faith in Christ alone through God's grace alone, any teaching that water baptism provides part or all of someone's salvation must be ruled out immediately. That would be a false gospel, and there can be no room to agree to disagree on that subject. However, it is entirely possible, and this is true of entire denominations, by the way, that genuine believers in Christ who share the same understanding of salvation will share different convictions about the meaning of baptism and when it should be practiced. And we need to know how to separate those two kinds of situations. There are many brilliant theologians whose work I respect and use in my own ministry, plus many other people I know personally who would disagree with my and many other churches' convictions on this topic, whom I nonetheless consider dear brothers and sisters in Christ because we share the same understanding of not only salvation, but also 90-95% to of the rest of theology. As Christians, we need to know how to grapple with this tension using the concept of theological triage. I've explained this in past episodes, so for the sake of time, I'll just say that in this case, where we both share an understanding of salvation but differ on baptism, I would call this a level two issue, meaning I would be in fellowship as a brother with such people, but I would probably never be a member of such a church that differed on an important belief like that. I mention all this because in case you're not paying much attention to national circles, baptism has become the elephant in the room among Reformed churches in America, no matter how you define that group. We've seen so much enthusiasm for unity among churches that share the same understanding of salvation and so much of the Bible that there's been a willingness to ignore one of the most important practices of the church. We as believers need to have the maturity to know who is still a brother or sister in Christ, yet wrestle with these issues and not pass them off as unimportant because we're afraid of fracturing our unity. This isn't some minor theological trivia. This is one of only two ordinances given to the corporate church. With all that in mind, then, we come to today's question. When should someone be baptized? You may be aware, but there are two main camps on this issue. Those who believe people should be baptized as soon as possible, usually as children, 
These people are known as paedo-baptists, paedo meaning child. The other side consists of those who believe people should only be baptized after they have made a credible profession of faith. They are called credo-baptists, credo meaning belief. This distinction is due to a difference in belief in what baptism signifies and what its purpose is for the church. Based on what was covered last week about the biblical meaning of baptism, it should come as no surprise that I believe the credo-baptist position is the most biblically consistent approach. So rather than rehash all that material, and in light of all the serious and sincere believers who hold a paedo-baptist position, I'd like to spend a few moments acknowledging the reasons for their beliefs, yet showing why I don't believe they are sufficient to prove those beliefs. In order to do so, I'm going to look at some key passages and beliefs to show how they either don't prove paedo-baptism the way people claim they do, or prove that credo-baptism is the more biblical position. I'll start right off the bat with the passages I hear brought up the most. When Acts chapter 16, verse 15, and later in verse 33, plus 1 Corinthians 1, 16, refer to someone's household being baptized, does that mean they baptize babies who couldn't yet exercise faith too? Well, the problem with trying to use those passages to prove that the church baptizes babies is that it is an argument from silence. It's trying to make a point based on something that isn't actually said in the text. In Greek usage, someone's household could include immediate family, extended family living with them, and even servants and slaves. The text never mentions babies being baptized. It just uses a fairly generic term that could include babies. We don't even know how old the named family members are to have an idea if babies were even possible at that point in their lives. That's pretty shaky ground to use as evidence to support that position. In fact, the only people baptized who were specifically identified in Scripture, such as the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, were always adults who, more importantly, believed in Christ, not merely the family members of others who did. However, let's assume for a second that at least one of those households had babies in it, which wouldn't be unreasonable, though still unproven. Even in that case, the statements about them wouldn't necessarily have to include babies for the same reason we wouldn't necessarily include babies in similar statements today. For example, let's say I have a three-month-old in addition to my three older kids, and I would say to you, all my family loves steak. Or, my whole family loves steak. Technically, I just made a statement that is all-inclusive and should include that baby, right? Nonetheless, you, as a rational person, realize that my statement must not have included the baby because he or she wouldn't be able to eat steak yet. I was cl clearly talking about my whole family who could eat steak. It's the same way with household statements in the Bible. If the statement shouldn't apply to babies in general, you shouldn't assume it does in those specific situations. If you already have a biblical reason baptism shouldn't include babies because, as was discussed last episode, baptism is a statement of, of a belief that babies can't yet possess, then you would automatically assume those passages wouldn't include babies the same way you would leave out the baby in my example about eating steak. Well, that brings us right back to where we started. How you read those passages depends entirely on what you believe about baptism to begin with. 
so you can't really use them to prove either view of baptism. As we see so often, theology informs practice, for better or worse, and it also informs interpretation. What we need, then, is to get down to those core beliefs about baptism. Instead of believing baptism is for believers because it portrays what happened in our salvation, the paedo-baptists, who don't believe in baptismal regeneration, go ahead and baptize children who don't necessarily believe yet anyway because they believe it is a sign of God's new covenant with his people that's a parallel to Israel's practice of circumcising their babies soon after they're born as a sign of the old covenant. While I can appreciate the similarities and the heart behind this reasoning, unfortunately, there are some significant holes in it. First and foremost, I hope I made the case well enough last episode to demonstrate that the Bible explains the concept of baptism in ways that make immersion of believers the only appropriate way to practice it. So adding meaning to it that is not found in Scripture is unwise. More specifically, though, I believe the Bible gives us reasons that circumcision and baptism need to be separated by more than just a distinction between Old Testament versus New Testament practice. For one, circumcision isn't a sign of the Old Covenant, though it was later included in the law. Rather, it was a sign of God's covenant with Abraham found in Genesis 17. Baptism, on the other hand, isn't a sign of the New Covenant either. Jesus told his disciples at the Last Supper, as recorded in Luke twenty-two fifteen through 20 that communion was to be the sign of the new covenant. So we see right off the bat that the idea of baptism being a sign of God's covenant with his people parallel to circumcision breaks down in some pretty key ways. On top of this, I would add that several passages in the New Testament make clear that baptism is expected of all believers. But circumcision wasn't replaced. Rather, it continued on as optional for those who wished to do so, presumably as a sign for Israelites to express their continued faith in God's promises to them as descendants of Abraham, as we see in passages like Romans 3.28-30. Moreover, these and other passages make clear that circumcision and baptism are two very different, not parallel, categories in the minds of New Testament authors. A great example of this is Colossians 2, 6-12, where we see both circumcision and baptism treated separately. There are other passages and lines of thought that I could address, but I hope I've made my point by now. If baptism isn't part of salvation or a sign of God's covenant, then baptizing infants is unnecessary at best. If it is meant to be a picture of salvation, then baptizing infants is inappropriate. So with that in mind, there's one more set of questions I'd like to address. When should the believer be baptized? Should it be done immediately or when someone feels inspired to do so later? Should it have anything to do with church membership? Well, the short answer, based on what we see throughout the book of Acts, is that believers should be baptized as soon as is reasonable, but also that it should be done by the church as a way to affirm their conversion. You'll recall from last episode that the early church would make sure new believers understood the faith before agreeing to it and then baptized them, so their testimony also served as a cue for the rest of the church to welcome them into fellowship. This is in sharp contrast, unfortunately, to the way many credo-baptists practice baptism today. Most churches who only baptize believers will either teach that baptism is part of their salvation— 
They'll encourage people to get baptized as soon as they show any interest in Christianity without any hint of real faith. Or they'll hardly ever bring up the subject of baptism at all, so people might go their whole lives without ever being baptized. Sadly, like many other areas of theology and practice, we tend to react to one unhealthy extreme by pivoting to the opposite. What we need instead is robust evangelism that seeks genuine conversion and disciples people enough to be as certain as we reasonably can as human beings that people have placed their faith in Christ. That doesn't mean people need to pass systematic theology tests before we can trust their faith, but it does require us to care about people themselves and whether they truly understand and believe what Christianity is instead of merely checking evangelism off like some sort of accomplishment on our part. And then, part of that discipleship process should include teaching people what baptism is and what it means, and then encouraging them to obediently follow this opportunity to testify to what God has done in them. Let's be clear. No one should have to convince Christians to be baptized. If they understand it, they should be eager to do it. Church membership ought to have baptism as a prerequisite because people refuse to be baptized once they've been taught about it. It sends the signal that they either don't understand their salvation, that they don't think it's important to obey, or that they aren't ready to commit to the church in general. On the other hand, if baptism testifies, among other things, that someone has joined the universal church spiritually, then the local church should be ready to accept that person as one of their own. I hope all this has been clear to you, even though this has been an admittedly brief dive into such an important topic, even when spread out over three episodes. That being said, I also hope the level of detail, especially in this week's episode, doesn't seem irrelevant to you. Baptism is an important enough facet of our faith that we need to understand how God expects us to practice it and why so we not only get as much out of it spiritually as God intends, but also so we are unfazed by the many differing opinions out there on the subject. Instead of seeing it as a source of argument, or worse, something closeted in irrelevance for the sake of avoiding those arguments, I hope you can see the beauty and depth of this ritual God gave us to help build up his church. May we all learn to better appreciate that everything God gives us and teaches us is worth the occasional struggle to understand in order to find and savor the blessings he has for us. Have a great week in the grace and peace of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ.